Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Forum for Philosophy. Subscribe for weekly discussions of science, culture, politics and the arts from a philosophical perspective. The Forum is a non-profit organisation and our events are free and open to all. You can support our work via our website and Facebook page. Tonight's event is a little bit special. Uh, in memory of Stephen Lewis. Stephen was a great friend of mine and of the Forum. Those of you who are regulars at the Forum might remember him from the front row where he was in most of our events. He was an uh, economist, but also a very serious philosopher. He took postgraduate classes in the evening while he worked. When he retired, he learned Greek and Latin so he could read philosophy in its original form. He was an ardent fan of ancient philosophy in particular, hence tonight's theme. He's a great loss to all of us at the Forum. I'm, I miss our conversations about politics and philosophy and especially the merits of the various Jean Le Carré adaptations. He had very strong views when they were, they were right. He also was our treasurer for very many years and kept us afloat when times were tough. And I have to say we miss him so badly. And so tonight's event is very much in his memory. Anyhow, that's enough from me. Let me hand you over to our fantastic panel for tonight's event. Thanks again for coming. Okay, thank you, Beth. And thank you all for being here this evening. I'm really excited to get this event on Aristotle underway. So Aristotle, obviously not one of the lesser known figures in the history of philosophy canon, a familiar figure to many of us. But this evening we're going to look at some uh, less often discussed topics, maybe uh, in the history of teaching Aristotle at least, including happiness, love, politics, habit, that kind of thing. So I'm just going to introduce our speakers first. Beside me is Joachim Auf der Heide, okay. who is lecturer in philosophy at King's College London. Uh, Sophie O'Connell is lecturer in philosophy Birkbeck, University of London. And Sophie Grace Chapel at the end is professor of philosophy at the Open University. Okay, so Sophie Grace, if you wouldn't mind getting us started. Can you give us a bit of background on who Aristotle was or how we have Aristotle's texts? Thank you. So there are two great philosophers, as we all know, in the ancient Greek world, Plato and Aristotle. And I think people quite often think that they know what Plato said. They think that Plato said there is another world from this one, full of forms, whatever they are. Um, Plato didn't quite say that, but people at least have some idea of what they think he said. With Aristotle, people are often a lot less clear. So where to start? I think one thing that's important to avoid in studying any philosopher at all is what I call the great books approach. The great books approach means in week one, you take Plato's Republic. In week two, you take Aeschylus's Oresteia. In week three, you take Aristotle's Ethics. In week four, you take the Confessions. In week five, you take, I don't know, the Meditations. Of, um, of Aurelius, or alternative the medication, the med medications of Descartes, <laughs> and then Mill, and then a bit of Thoreau, and you treat these texts as if they were just improving books, a row of improving books shorn of their historical context. So I want to say a few things just to combat that idea, because as they say in some churches, a text without a context is a pretext you'll never get what you ought to be getting out of a writer like Aristotle unless you have some sense of where he comes in history. So what to say about him? 
Perhaps the first thing to say about Aristotle is that um, if you think of the modern consensus about how physics works, roughly Newtonianism with some twists introduced in the 20th century, then the view that that modern consensus about how physics works is set up in opposition to a preceding consensus, which was basically Aristotle's views. And if you think about how we think now about biology, post-Darwin and post many other Darwinian thinkers, there was a preceding consensus about how biology worked, and basically that was Aristotle. So in the case of physics, the preceding consensus which went back to Aristotle by long and devious routes. I'll say more about those in a moment. But the idea was you have a world where everything is seeking to be in its proper place. Everything is trying to get where it belongs. Fire is trying to get upwards. Earth is trying to get downwards. There are four elements, not 120, however many it is now that modern chemistry has. There are four elements, and they're all everything seeking to be where it ought to be. That is the consensus that people got from Aristotle. In biology, species are eternal and species are fixed and the world lasts forever. There may be change in the world but the world is basically there to stay. So humanity there, humanity also is there to stay. We're there to stay. There's no evolution on the Aristotelian picture. Now that is the first thing to know about Aristotle that Aristotle represents in those two areas, physics and biology, a, consens a consensus, a very long consensus in Western thought, which has now been overthrown. In ethics, and in, perhaps in politics, certainly in ethics, things look more hopeful for Aristotle today, because in ethics in particular, we have, many of us, the hope that something might be done with Aristotle's ideas to help us think about ethics. And we're going to say more about that as we go on. But the first thing to understand about Aristotle is this. He was a very great scientist, and very great scientists, when they're far enough back in the history of science, are often distinguished by being very greatly wrong. But that is not to Aristotle's discredit. He founded a world picture which we have inherited, and it's important that he founded that world picture in lots of ways, because in some ways we're still trying to think of our way out of our Aristotelian heritage. It's important to understand, for example, I think it's important that species are not fixed, that species change over time, that species evolve. So that's something about Aristotle in relation to us today. How did Aristotle get to us? Where does his thought come from? First thing to say about him is he's a pupil of Plato. He lived from 384 to 322 BC. He grew up learning from Plato. He was a pupil of Plato's, then a junior colleague of Plato's, who I think frightened the wits out of Plato on many occasions. Because Aristotle is often thought by ancient philosophers who read him to be saying basically the same thing as Plato. And in some ways they are on the same page, in others not at all. Here's the most striking difference between them. Plato believes, I, I think, this is my reading of Plato, in a world where things are basically mixtures of other things. So you are a mixture of various um, source elements. And that is a place in, uh, in Plato's physics where something like the forms comes in. Plato thinks that we're mixtures and essentially mixtures. Aristotle thinks 
that we're something more than that. We're what Aristotle calls substance. You are, says Aristotle, a oneness. You are a particular thing with a nature of your own. And that nature of yours strives towards its own particular good. And the kind of nature that you are is determined in part by your biology, by the fact that you're a human being, by the species that you're an example of. Human beings have a particular way of living, just as seashells do, just as dogs do, just as slime molds do. Aristotle was very interested in all sorts of lowly creature, including seashells. You have a particular way of living, and the good life for you is to achieve that particular way of living. And you are a natural unity. You are a substance. So in that sense, Aristotle's view was absolutely, I think, diametrically opposed to Plato's view. They weren't on the same page at all. And Aristotle is a great philosopher because he had the ability to invent a completely different view, a view of his own, a view based on deep reflection about change and continuity in the natural world. And he set that up in opposition to Plato's kind of view. I'm going to draw this to a close in a moment, but one more thought that I want to offer to you is picture this. Suppose you have a library with 100,000 books in it, and suppose a great fire comes along and ravages that library, and suppose 90% of that library is burned, or more. I'm, I'm not going to get caught up in arithmetic. Let's say that out of that library, only 1,000 books survive. That is something like our position relative to the ancient world. Of all the things that were written in the ancient world, of course we have no way of knowing how much we've lost. But it's pretty clear that we've lost most of what was written in the ancient world. In the case of Aristotle, we've lost an enormous amount of his writings. We know that because Aristotle is described by Augustine and by Cicero and by others as a beautifully smooth, clear, limpidly rhetorical writer and the bits of Aristotle that we have occasionally there are purple passages but mostly his prose is frankly pretty shoddy it's not easy to read in the way that Plato is Plato is a wonderful stylist Aristotle it's like reading notes on the back of an envelope sometimes it's really difficult to read sometimes not always but mostly so we know that we've lost most of Aristotle and we also know that we very nearly lost a great deal more one of the best bits of good fortune for the West, the Christian West, in the 11th to 13th centuries, one of the best bits of good fortune was, paradoxically, the fall of Byzantium. Because in Byzantium, in the Byzantine tradition, a great deal of ancient literature was stored in their libraries. A lot of that was either lost um, in 1204, the first time Byz Byzantium was sacked by the Venetians, or in 1453, the second time it fell to the, to the Ottoman Empire. On both occasions, a great deal of um, ancient literature was, as they say when they're shoplifting, liberated. And a lot of it got to Venice, which is why quite a few manuscripts from the ancient world are called Codex Venetus, the Venetian Codex. Um, a lot of it got to other places in the West. The recovery of Aristotle happened in the West after about 1200, 1200 because of the fall of Byzantium and because people moved away from Byzantium to the West and because the Ottoman Empire got closer, Arabic influences got closer, the Arabs had their own separate tradition 
of Aristotle's scholarship. And that came into the West after that time. So um, a great scholar called Albert the Great and other scholars like um, Robert Grosstester in Britain, in, in Oxford, they became the first people who set up a syllabus that lasted from 1200 in Oxford and Cambridge and the universities of Paris and the, the other great universities of the West. They became universities which were solidly based in their curriculum upon Aristotle's works and upon interpretation and translation and understanding of Aristotle's works. And the question I cannot get anyone in Oxford to tell me, because it's a historically important question, I can't get the answer out of them, is when did Aristotle come onto the syllabus in Oxford? Why is it that people in Oxford read Aristotle's ethics? Which was the reason why, we'll come to this in a minute, the reason why Aristotle became so important in virtue ethics in Britain and then in America in the 1950s, because Aristotle was already on the syllabus. How long had he been on the syllabus? Had he been on the syllabus continuously from about 1200, or had he been on the syllabus only from the Victorian reforms of Oxford in about 1840? I know Gladstone studied Aristotle's ethics when Gladstone was an undergraduate at Christchurch in the 1830s, but I don't know how much, how much longer before that Aristotle was already on the syllabus. Maybe he was on the syllabus all the way through, I'm not sure. Questions like this, questions of historical detection. This is the good thing about, about being a scholar. You get to pursue these kind of Sherlock Holmes queries, and it looks like a really small, recondite, detailed question, and yet all kinds of cultural, cultural influence, all kinds of change in our society can hang upon the answer to the question, who was reading Aristotle when, and what effect did it have on their thinking? And that, of course, is the question now. Aristotle is still on syllabuses in places like Birkbeck and um, in the Open University and elsewhere in the academic world. Aristotle is very popular on syllabuses these days. Um, but there was a period in the past when Aristotle was kind of eclipsed, the Reformation. And we'll talk about that a bit later, maybe. Sure. Thank you for such a rich introduction. I also share your enthusiasm for the detective role uh, in philosophy. But uh, we mentioned a bit the, the ethics of Aristotle's that you know, have a sort of dominant history, uh, even surprisingly recently. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how we begin to think about the picture that Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics presents? Okay, so one thing a lot of people know about Aristotle is that Aristotle talks about virtue. The Greek word here is arete, and there's another detective quest to be pursued here tracing the word arete back, because arete originally means, um, well, martiality, warlikeness, because ares is the god of war, and arete is the quality of being like him. And in Latin, the corresponding word virtus comes straight from vir, which is the Latin word for man. So virtus is manliness originally, and one of the Greek virtues corresponds to virtus in this way. There's a virtue andrea, courage, and the Greek for man is aner, um, which is where you get the, the stem andro in, in English words like androphilic and so forth. So the virtues, what are the virtues? Well, we think of them as ways of being good, and that's not so very wrong, provided you're clear what you mean by being good. Be good is something we say to children in nurseries to get them to behave. That's not the kind of goodness Aristotle has in mind. It's much more like warlikeness. And what it actually is, both in Aristotle and indeed in Homer, virtue is the quality 
of being the kind of person that you need to be to have a successful life as a human being. And actually, the Iliad, one of my other favorite texts in Greek philosophy, they'll, they'll have to drag me off the stage in a minute if I get going on the Iliad. The Iliad is all about the question, what is virtue? Meaning, not how is it possible to be good in a little girl in the nursery sense, but meaning, what is virtue in the sense, what kind of person do you need to be to be a successful human being? That's Aristotle's question too. It's also one of Socrates and Plato's questions, of course. What is virtue? What kind of human being do you need to be to achieve the goods distinctive of being a human? And then we get to talk about particular virtues because we think, say, about ruthlessness, a quality much prized by many of the characters in the Iliad, a, character, sorry, a characteristic much prized by many of Aristotle's contemporaries. Question, is ruthlessness a virtue? Is it the kind of quality that you need to have in order to be a successful human being? And then next question, what does success mean here? Dare I ask what success does mean here? Um, you can ask it. Um, but the question is open, and I mean it to be open because we all need to think about that. We all need to think about um, whether we really want to be the kind of people who succeed, as some people do in the Iliad, by ruthlessness. Is that the kind of person that you want to be? Is that what you want to count as success? So Aristotle paints a fa fairly clear picture in the ethics of what he thinks um, successful human living is all about. And it does not involve ruthlessness. It's not a ruthless life that he advocates. It's a life of courage, and it's, but it's also a life of justice. And it's a life of um, sophrosyne, which is Aristotle's word for we sometimes call it temperance, self-control, restraint, holding back, knowing when to stop. That's sophrosyne. And I submit that sophrosyne and ruthlessness don't really go together. So just maybe one more question on this before we open up to sort of join in with the introduction. But uh, Aristotle also has sort of ideas about how one becomes virtuous, right, that separate him from his predecessors in terms of the role reason plays and the role practice. Could you say a little bit about that? Sure. Um, and actually, this is a great way. I mentioned the Reformation a minute ago. This is a great way to get Luther in because here's what Aristotle says, um, at least as many people read him. You can become a good human being by practicing the virtues. The virtues are justice, temperance, courage, and wisdom. And then there are other lists of virtues in Aristotle's ethics. Ransack those lists, they're fascinating. They are a sociology. They give you such a picture of Aristotle's society and what that society thought being a successful human being amounted to. But the idea in Aristotle pretty clearly is that you can become a good person by practicing the virtues. And our culture today, historically, is a fusion of many things. Two of the important things are Christianity and Greek thought like Aristotle and Plato. And a key moment in the history of our society came when Luther and the Reformation Protestants came up against the Catholic tradition, which they understood as saying, with Aristotle, you can become a good person by trying to be one. You can become a good person by um, practicing virtue and by inculcating yourself into good habits of life. And Luther said, that's absolutely unchristian because the Christian message is about how we're completely broken, we're helpless, we can't improve ourselves, we can't make ourselves better on our own. 
We cannot do this in our own strength. We need God's grace. Without that grace, we are nothing. And actually, some of the subtler Catholic thinkers, in particular Aquinas, who talks about distinction between infused grace, sorry, in, infused virtue, virtue which comes by grace, and habitual virtue which comes by effort. Some of the subtler thinkers in the Catholic tradition were certainly saying exactly that. But for Luther, they didn't go far enough. Luther said, you can't make yourself a good person. You're a rotten, stinking scumbag. And the only thing that can change you is grace coming from outside. And so that was the moment at which Aristotle got eclipsed, because Luther thought that Aristotle and his followers, like Aquinas, were preaching what Luther saw as a gospel of works instead of faith and grace. Thank you. It's a really interesting addition. Uh, I'm just wondering, Sophia, Joachim, if you have anything to add to the kind of introductory picture here. Um, yeah, I was going to say something about taking Aristotle within his historical context. So we had a very good account of how we get the works of Aristotle, how they got to us. S Sophie mentioned the fact that um, a whole lot of Aristotle's works come through the Arab philosophers, and actually a lot of that is the biological works. And these were sort of separated off in the West because it didn't fit so well with the project of combining Plato and Aristotle, which was going on in the early Middle Ages. And as you heard, uh, Aristotle had quite a different way of thinking about the body and the soul as one unit, which are not, so, not as dualistic as Plato. He has his moments of dualism, but not as comprehensively. He has a way of explaining how you think and the functions of your soul, which are integrated with your body. And so all the biological works and the psychological works that are about how the body operates were sidelined, rather, in some parts of the Western tradition and brought in um, later on. So I wanted to mention that. The other thing I wanted to mention about historical context is when you read Aristotle or you read about Aristotle, you have to be aware that he is not a modern philosopher. He couldn't have known anything about academic journals, for one thing. Hooray. He couldn't have, <laughs> he couldn't have even known what a university was. Um, he didn't have a sense of environmental degradation. So if we judge the way he talks about animals sometimes, or he dissected them, or, so, or he said we should use them for our purposes, he had no, there were only about a 50th of the people we have now on the planet at that time, and there was a lot of the natural world. He couldn't really imagine extinction. This is part of the reason that he thinks that, part of the reason he can't, well, he doesn't have a theory of evolution, but of course, no, none of, nobody has that theory until much, much, much later on. But he does think that species continue forever. He couldn't imagine extinction. I mean, he only imagines it so long as to say it's impossible. The life cycles have to continue forever. Um, so it's just to keep in mind that when you're reading him, how different his world was. And what I find striking, though, is how you can still engage with parts of his philosophy, I think in particular his ethics, that um, even though it was a completely different world where cities were constructed entirely differently, there was a whole different kind of technology, a um, whole different way of communicating, he still has some basic ideas of what makes people good that we can still hold on to and see and, and reflect on and see the, um, similarities and ways to develop. Um, so I think that's all I wanted to say on that. Okay, are there any questions, first of all?
Okay, we've got one in the middle here. We're just going to wait until we can get the microphone. Okay, since, um, since we're talking about Aristotle now, and some of the speakers have said that his ethics are perhaps most relevant to today, um, I have a question, which is one of the concepts that exercises some people today is meaningfulness or perhaps meaninglessness in life. Do you think that this was something that concerned Aristotle at all? Thank you very much. Uh, could you possibly maybe uh, expand a little bit on, more on, um, on the connection between ethics and politics? Because my understanding in Aristotle is that they cannot really be separated. So political is the unfolding of the ethical in, in the public's public area, in the in, you know, public square. And uh, what do you think is the relevance of, of that general idea today? Thank you so much. So just to summarize in case it didn't get picked up, the first question is about, given that we're trying to look at the relevance of Aristotelian ethics for the contemporary moment, uh, meaningfulness and meaninglessness are really important concepts to get a grasp on these days, and does Aristotle have much to say uh, in that square? And then the second question, ideally, is exactly where we're moving in the next section, so um, maybe you can begin you know, to take that question as you go in. Sure. Okay, on um, ethics and politics, yes, absolutely. The last words of the Nicomachean ethics are, let us then begin. Archomen, it's one word in Greek. Um, let us then begin the study of politics. So everything in the ethics is a prolegomenon to Aristotle's politics. So you study, Aristotle's order is this, and it's interesting. First you study the individual, human, then you look at humans living together. Humans are meant to live together. Then naturally, that's why Aristotle famously says, Aristotle, man is a political animal, the only quotation from Aristotle that everybody knows, because humans are meant to live together, according to Aristotle. But you start with the individual, despite that. You study the individual first. On meaning, um, Aristotle thinks that if you live a life of what he calls eudaimonia, a life of happiness, then you will be living the life that is meaningful for human beings. But he's not unaware of the kind of, as it were, existential doubts that we have today. He thinks that eudaimonia is a way of living which gets round such worries, but he's perfectly well aware of the possibility of saying, better for a human being not to have been born. Because the first person to say that was not Jean-Paul Sartre or, or Jean-Henri or Cocteau or someone, it was Sophocles. At least I think it was Sophocles, but there were probably other Greeks who said it before him. Um, yes, and I, and I think that there was a strain of Platonic or Pythagorean thinking, which was that you were better off not to have been born because this body is a cage and a prison, um, and living here is much worse than being your soul being separated from your body. Now, Aristotle didn't think that your soul could do very much separated from your body. It might be a tiny bit of theoretical thinking, who knows, but you wouldn't be the person you are without your body and without living, being brought up in a community and living in a community. Right? You just wouldn't have a good life. So there's that to add. But also the um, meaningfulness. Well, eudaimonia, which is often translated as happiness, and that doesn't really sum it up very well, but this would give your, this would make your life meaningful if you could get there, if you could have that. That would be a meaningful life. So... We'll hear more about that from the yeah. next speaker. 
I wonder. So <clears throat> about the meaningfulness, so it's an interesting question. So the question of meaningfulness is really interesting and it would be sad if a life could only be meaningful if it actually turns out to be happy um, because lots of us won't achieve that and Aristotle was very aware of that. So perhaps a life that aims at um, a certain conception of happiness might be counting as meaningful. And for Aristotle, and that's part of um, what he what underlies the ethics, but what he makes very explicit in the politics is that um, the meaning really of life is found in leisure, right? So working is subordinate um, to that for those who have to work. Um, and then there is leisure, and it depends on what you do with your leisure time, whether this life turns out to be um, a meaningful one or not. And Aristotle gives you quite some interesting um, view of what he thinks the meaningful life or the, the, the proper use of your leisure um, would be like. Um, but we've talked a bit about how flourishing for Aristotle may involve uh, interpersonal connections and living within a society and that maybe these things shouldn't be understood in isolation from each other. Uh, can you tell us a bit about how he speaks about relationships between people or friendship and how that plays a role in his philosophical thinking? Yeah, very good. Um, so maybe I should um, pick up on um, one thing that um, uh, Sophie Gray said, namely that um, the Nicomachean ethics is directed um, at a politician. Um, so it addresses uh, the politicians and then spells out how the good life for individuals looks like and then in the end um, goes back to this uh, more political frame and then segs over um, into the politics. Aristotle wrote another work on ethics, the Eudemian ethics, which doesn't have um, this political framework. So it's an interesting question um, why Aristotle framed um, one of his great books, the Nicomachean Ethics, in this more political way, and the other one not. Now, um, I'll pick up another thing uh, from Sophie Grace because it helps um, to answer the question about the connection, again, between the politics and the ethics, and that is the, um, the soundbite, um, human beings are political animals. So, um, why would Aristotle think that and what does it mean? So, and I think I try to explain these two things together. So, um, Aristotle thinks that uh, we as human beings are not self-sufficient, uh, which means that if we are just on our own, uh, we would perish. Um, so, uh, he thinks that, well, by nature, we form families, right? That was the one idea that uh, the humankind um, persists, and in order for it to do that, we have to have families and, um, and create our offspring, and then they carry on. Okay, so having families, that's something that is natural to us, just as it is, of course, to other animals. Human life doesn't stop there. Um, he, Aristotle thinks that, well, this self-sufficiency if you are just um, at the level of families, you are still not really getting anywhere. Um, so he thinks we tend to form into villages where um, our basic needs are much better met than if we were to stick to our uh, small nuclear families. So if you have a village where different people do different things, then um, providing food and uh, building houses and so on and clothing, 
um, that is much better cared for. Um, but again, uh, this isn't the, the end point. Aristotle, this is the next move in his uh, thought, thinks that villages, um, they form together again as a larger political unit and that um, is the city-state. And the city-state, that's the translation for the Greek word polis, which is where we have all the um, cognates um, of political and so on from. Okay, so the idea is that um, it is natural for us to um, have to form families. Then it is also natural for us um, to have these larger units, the villages, and then these villages they already uh, point towards the next larger um, political unit, namely the city-state. So if the two earlier stages are natural and um, they point towards this last, the bigger thing, then Aristotle thinks, well, the city-state, that's also something that's natural. So very roughly, the idea is that just as the um, acorn and the sapling, they point towards the fully developed um, oak tree, in this way, also, um, the family and the village, they point towards the, the polis. Now, um, and so that's the reason why Aristotle says that, or one of the reasons uh, why Aristotle says that we are um, political animals because um, the way that we live is directed at um, living in the city-state. And yeah, so this is something uh, natural for us to do. Now, the question of um, flourishing comes in there as well. I've already said that um, the, so our basic needs are better met in these uh, larger um, communities, okay. Um, but Aristotle says, well, the, um, the city-state, the polis, comes into being for the sake of living, but it remains in existence for the sake of living well. So the idea is that there is something special about living in the city-state that enables us to live well, which may not be available to us um, if we were to live outside of the city-state. Because clearly, uh, human beings aren't political animals uh, in the sense that we couldn't live outside of a city. Clearly we can. Aristotle knows of nomads and other tribes that aren't organized in cities. But for him, the idea is that, well, those people do not really um, live in the fullest way that is available to human beings. And that already indicates just a little bit how um, living in a city-state may help us to flourish. The idea is that um, in city-states, our fellow citizens, we do not regard them as business partners uh, in the sense that um, we don't want to be um, screwed over by them and we don't screw them over, but we basically have a pact um, that we all sort of try to maintain a reasonably good city in which each of us can pursue their own individual goals. That's not Aristotle's view. His view is much stronger. His view is that um, the citizens, they have a special relationship which he calls civic friendship. Um, and this is instructive in so far as friends, according to Aristotle, they share a life. They have 
goodwill towards each other and they know that this goodwill exists um, and they also share goods. So if you think of, so, and Aristotle thinks that for instance, a family, that is an excellent place to understand how friendship works because he thinks that this relation of friendship exists between um, parents and children, for instance. Um, so it is the, the translation of the Greek word philia isn't, um, the, friendship isn't the best word there, but that's the one that um, we just use. Love might be um, perhaps better in some contexts. Now, um, the important thing is that friends, they share goods. So if in Aristotle's city-state, um, where we have this community of, um, of friends, where one of them gets some, something good, it isn't only the individual good, but because uh, goods are shared among friends, everybody, in a way, gets a share of this good, right? So if in your family, uh, if your child, let's say, um, accomplishes something, you can really pat yourself on the back for that. And it isn't facetious or anything like that. It's a real, a genuine achievement. And in this way, Aristotle wants us to think also about the city. So in this way, um, when we live together in the city that Aristotle, um, in, in a good city, in a well-governed one, um, then the, um, the goods that are available to you far outstrip um, the goods that you would be able to achieve were you um, stranded somewhere on a desert island. Um, yeah, maybe I'll leave it there. I just thought maybe did you want to comment as you go? I'm, I'm just uh, pondering as, as you speak, Joachim, um, the, the very good question that we had earlier about meaning in life and the idea that is certainly there in Aristotle's ethics that work is for the sake of leisure and the various subordinate crafts in the city are there for the sake of the overall end of eudaimonia in the city. And it sometimes seems like the whole world exists for the sake of a handful of aristocrats. And I'm, I'm thinking about all this, and I'm, I'm devil's advocating now. Put me right. But in some writers on the subject of work, some of them in, an in the Aristotelian tradition, I'm thinking particularly of Alistair McIntyre, you get the take-up of an idea which is there in Marx and in Freud, that one of the most important sources of meaningfulness for ordinary human beings living in a community together is work. And Freud famously said the other one is love. Work and love are the two foundations of our well-being in society for Freud. And in Marx, there's this idea of unalienated work being one of the most fulfilling things you can do. And McIntyre takes that up. And I think McIntyre, when he takes up this idea, that for most human beings, the ideal for them is to be able to live a life in which they do something genuinely worthwhile, genuinely satisfying as a job that they put their heart and soul into, like being an academic, actually, like carving wood, like um, fixing things, making them work. These are examples of, a, of labor that could be unalienated. Now, devil's advocating... I'm seeing more of this in the Aristotelian tradition, and particularly in McIntyre, than I'm seeing in Aristotle himself. Put me right. Okay, good. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think for Aristotle, and I didn't stress that, um, the idea of work is um, a bit ambivalent. Um, and so, in fact, is the concept of leisure. 
um, because sometimes for Aristotle, leisure just means um, that you basically have time over to do things that you want. Um, and at other times, it means um, engaging in very specific activities, such as going to the theater or doing philosophy, um, which, of course, are, are very different things. Now, um, what I would... so. It's true, and I mentioned already this idea of friendship. Um, Arist for Aristotle, friendship, in fact, plays a tremendously important role in the ethics. In fact, um, this is the longest treatment there. Here there are two books out of ten in the Nicomachean Ethics devoted to friendship. Um, and it's sort of sidelined a little bit sometimes, um, but it clearly is very important to Aristotle. Now, um, what friends do, as I said, they share the goods and they... Um, they care for each other, they care for their own sakes, they care about each other's character, um, but also, very importantly, they do things together. Um, and I would probably argue that um, for Aristotle, um, if those things, um, like carving wood or um, doing whatever, fishing, um, if that is something that um, is supposed to um, make your life meaningful, it could do that much better if you share that together with other people. And there, that's another um, claim there that um, the activity, so Aristotle thinks about work in extremely often instrumental terms. And there it's very clear that, okay, you do something just for the sake of something else, then it is very hard to see um, the value in that and sort of really put your heart into it if you see, well, um, I'm only this uh, tiny um, little cog in this really great machine. Um, but on the other hand, if um, you do this shared activity together with friends, um, then, and you care for each other, and you value what you do, then these, um, on the one hand, um, perhaps subordinate activities um, they can take on a different meaning, at least in your little community, right? When you, let's have, say, have a wood workshop, then the craftsmanship, you can admire that. Other people don't care about that, but that you've carved it in this beautiful way and only in two hours. That is amazing, and everybody you know, can pat you on the back for that. That's the sort of um, community that Arist for Aristotle's city is extremely important, and that, I think, is um, really then where the meaning is found for people who do works like that. There's something very hopeful in that, I think, as well. I'm just wondering, I mean, maybe it's an unfair question, but whether you think there are some important Aristotelian insights, politically speaking, that would be sort of beneficial for the modern age or, you know, anything that we sort of miss from the Aristotelian story very frequently. Okay, good. Um, well, I guess this is one case where um, looking back to the past, it tends to look rosier um, just because it's long past and can't be brought back. For Aristotle, um, the political organization there, the, the city-state, he was very clear that there has to be a limited um, number of citizens because otherwise this concept of civic friendship simply doesn't wash. Uh, right? So in the nations that are our um, <coughs> most important political um, units there, we don't have this relationship to other people where we genuinely care about each other's character. Um, so we do care perhaps about the character of politicians, um, but um, it's not... So so vote. 
Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, but as long as they don't um, don't do wrong in office, um, we can say, well, whatever they do privately is none of my concern. And for Aristotle, that would be this attitude would be a no-no, um, because um, we care for each other's character, and that I think is really. Um, important um, in this, so both on this larger scale, but also um, for Aristotle, the, the city-state consists of smaller communities like families and these villages, or as we just said, the wood, the, the, um, wood shop, the workshop there. Um, and there that we perhaps move away a little bit from these uh, more instrumental relationships, if that is the case, I don't know how it's for you, um, and more towards um, caring about each other's character, taking share in each other's life for the sake of the other person, that Aristotle would say is certainly a step in the right direction. I oh, just um, about the, um, on that point, I, I think, uh, although you might get the impression reading the first part of the Nicomachean Ethics that he's very individualistic, he's talking about eudaimonia of individuals, it's just a construct. He has to talk about the individual to get clear on one person separated from others. But it's an artificial construct. No person on her own is a proper human being. You can't have a human being on their own. They would be anomalous. They wouldn't be able to... It's not just that they can't survive. They can't flourish. They, can't have, they have to have close relationships to other people in order to be a human being and in order to be able to become... Um, to do well and to live well. And so that bit, it's like in the biology where he takes a single animal or a part of an animal and explains it. It doesn't mean that that part of the animal could exist without the animal. So talking, taking seriously these books on friendship, I think is really important to understanding Aristotle's ethics and then his politics, which is, as we've been saying, is interwoven with the ethics because you can't you can't have this good life unless you live in the right community. So just to reinforce that. And just following up what Sophia says, um, with reference again to McIntyre, I think McIntyre does bring this out. It is an Aristotelian point, but I think he brings out much better than Aristotle himself. The way in which being involved in what McIntyre calls, it's a technical term for him, a practice, um, being involved in a practice is a very clear demonstration of how humans do not exist on their own, but exist as parts of traditions, parts of ongoing narratives, parts of um, constructions around them. So you, you learn to be a, a woodcarver, let's say, and you go into the, wood, the workshop as an apprentice on day one. You're surrounded by older people who know how to carve wood, and you don't. You start off trying to carve wood. They come in, what on earth are you doing? Not like that, like this. Um, that's not how you use a plane. Planes are not for knocking nails in. That's a hammer. A plane is for smoothing, etc., etc. You get inducted by these means into a practice. Aristotle's word for this, roughly speaking, is techne. And in learning a techne, you learn how to do meaningful work within a context which is set by a tradition of how to perform that craft within your society. And this is something you simply cannot do on your own. Mm. And for McIntyre, in After Virtue in particular, it's the primary place where we exhibit virtue. Above all, for McIntyre in After Virtue, virtue is a matter of good performance of practices within that kind of civic background, that kind of tradition. So we're necessarily social animals 
for that kind of reason. And that's a beautiful spelling out of what Aristotle might mean by man is a political politicon zoon, a political animal, a social animal. That's a beautiful spelling out, but I have to say I still don't see that level of detail in Aristotle himself. But maybe that's why Aristotle but is such may, a good But philosopher. maybe we do have so to critical. adapt that particular point so we don't have these small communities in which we could know everybody else and care about their families and their children and their... Uh, we couldn't know everyone personally, but we can have these smaller communities like our work colleagues or the play group or the church group where we have those kind of communities now within these bustling modern cities, but you have smaller groups. Because if you didn't have those, how could you be happy? How could you live well if you didn't ha actually have these connections with other people and learn from other people and teach other people on a daily basis? Think about admiration. Whose admiration do you care about? When someone says to you, well done, that was really good, who do you want to hear saying that? It's the people in the craft that you're practicing who know more about it than you do. So here, actually, we see the virtue of humility emerging. This is why humility is a virtue, or it's one of the reasons, because to be in a craft is to be constantly aware that there are other people who know far more than you do about this and are far better than you at it and can teach you something. And to be in a craft is to be prepared to learn from them. I wonder if we could round it out a bit, and this is to any of you who want to answer it. I'm interested in who the intended audience of, more generally, the Nicomachean ethics might have been back then. So even if we say human is a political animal, who is human for Aristotle? I mean, isn't this a completely different social and political context? There probably are some things there we need to discuss. I mean, I'm just wondering, is that at the forefront for Aristotle at all? Or is just assumed that when he means person, he means a specific kind of person? Good. So let me expand a little bit on the um, claim that the Nicomachean ethics is um, at least overtly um, directed at politicians, um, in fact. So for Aristotle, the idea is that um, as a politician, your job is um, to make people better, right? which is um, perhaps different <laughs> from how we have it at the moment. <laughs> Uh, so that was his idea. And in order to, um, to improve people, that's why he gives us this um, really fairly complex analysis of um, what a virtue is like. So the theoretical analysis of what a virtue is and then um, the, based on this theoretical um, framework, um, the more detailed analysis of um, what those individual virtues are that um, Partly other people already recognized, partly um, some things that fell out of Aristotle's system where he says, well, these should be virtues even if uh, we don't really talk about them like that. Um, and then, um, yeah, as uh, Sophie Grace already said, in the end, Aristotle says, and this is a strikingly difficult passage, he says, okay, now um, our ethics, um, that is, uh, is a practical work and we don't, read the ethics only for the sake of knowing about it. If you do that, you have failed. Um, what you need to do is you need to put into practice um, the things that I've been laying out here for you. And so there's a really important question whether um, once you've read the ethics, what you then need to do, because Aristotle then goes on to say that, well, um, you need to use this knowledge to make yourself better and also um, to teach other people virtue. And that's why you need the politics. 
And so it's really then slightly ambiguous. Wait, is he really saying that every single person um, who wants to become good, who wants to live the highest um, flourishing life there that Aristotle has to offer, those people, do they really all have to study the politics and become statesmen, make other people better? Or is it um, that, well, when we engage in um, virtuous actions on a sort of ordinary level, then still we need to have a pretty serious understanding of our politics um, in order to engage in those um, virtuous actions? That's a question there. We, we shouldn't close the session without noticing two rather tragic ironies about Aristotle's life. The first is that he produces these books on education. Now, before Aristotle, Plato's character Socrates, and I phrase that carefully, spent a lot of time in Plato's dialogues making fun of the sophists because the sophists were, editing, were offering an education for Athenian gentlemen to make them true statesmen of the Athenian polis. And Socrates was always saying, well, if you've got the method of education, then it must work, right, by definition. If this is the correct method, then it works. But your method doesn't work, because look at the scoundrels who have been to the sophists, dreadful people like Alcibiades, um, who was a traitor to Athens, went over to the um, Spartans first and then to the Persians, Athens' two biggest enemies. Now, Aristotle is teaching, or wants to be teaching, Athenian gentlemen how to run a city-state. Irony number one, Aristotle is not an Athenian. He is from Stagira in Macedonia. He doesn't have voting rights. He's what's known as a metic, a metoikos, someone who lives with us, not a proper citizen. Think of EU citizens in a post-Brexit Britain. That kind of status only lower. So he's a bit questionable. And here he is sounding off to the Athenians about how they should organize the education of gentlemen from that outsider status. Second irony, who's Aristotle's most famous pupil? Alexander the Great, who is a rampaging pillager who destroys the city-state, the polis that Aristotle is talking about, building gentlemen who will secure the virtues of the polis. That's Aristotle's project. His most famous pupil is the man who destroys the Greek city-state pretty much forever, um, and is also a Macedonian, of course. So... Poor old Aristotle. Can he I had to be the Yeah, First of all, although he was from Stagira, Stagira was very powerful and it had setting up its own colonies. And so he was thinking about some of the politics, is yeah. thinking about setting up colonies, which the Stagirans were doing. And on Alexander the Great, I just really do not believe that Aristotle could have, he could have listened in the lessons or. <laughs> been taught by Aristotle, I don't know, but it's, it's all apocryphal anyway. Okay, so he's not, not a good poster child for the, for the Aristotelian method. No. Yeah, Alexander said whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, well, do you have any more questions at this point? Um, the, the virtuous life, I wonder what's the difference between Seneca, idea of the virtuous life, and uh, Aristotle. Is that that with Aristotle, uh, commitment to the city, to the community, is very important, whereas for Senec, it's rather the idea of keeping away from the turmoil of, of the world? <coughs> Thank you. I think that <coughs> Aristotle, in his politics, there are a few paragraphs described of public ownership. 
and the private ownership, public life and the private life. And uh, I couldn't remember well, but roughly he said, he, in his opinion, we couldn't say which is better. It will depend on the kind of efficiency. Imagine that he was here, and we put his, his <coughs> idea into reality. What do you think of his idea? I mean that which capitalist or socialist, which one, which he will prefer? Or putting that into British reality, conservative or labor? Thank mm -hmm. you. I was just wondering if you could expand upon Aristotle's notion of essentialism and telos, and um, you also mentioned the Reformation. And I was just wondering if you could talk about how Protestant, early Protestant thinkers like Thomas Hobbes, uh, for instance, kind of used Aristotle as an intellectual foil in a way, and maybe even um, Descartes, that kind of thing. Thank you. Thank you. So the first question is on the difference between Seneca and Aristotle uh, on their systems, maybe in terms of commitment to community in Aristotle's case, but maybe less so in the second case. Second question, which spanned a greater breadth, uh, discussed public versus private ownership and efficiency, and then this upcoming election, I guess, at the end. <laughs> Uh, and then the final question to expand a little bit on the role of Aristotelian essentialism, but I suppose that might come up in the next section as well to do with the sciences, and then also on the Reformation. I could briefly um, say something about the first question, Aristotle and Seneca. Um, so I'm a little bit out of my depth here, but um, I'll just say very roughly um, one important difference that um, between, well, Stoics and Aristotelians um, in their account of virtue as it pertains to the good life um, and difference that exists there. For Aristotle, um, the virtues, um, they are not only about actions, but very importantly, um, it is also about um, your emotions, basically. So for Aristotle, um, it is... Um, so you have to act in the right way uh, and you also have to feel in the right way. And um, for Aristotle, um, being really angry, for instance, that can be sometimes exactly the right response. Whereas um, on the Stoic side, it looks as if they, um, perhaps going back to um, Socrates and Plato, they think that um, sort of letting your anger show and not trying to beat back <coughs> all the time. That is something that um, eventually um, may corrupt uh, your virtue. So that's one of the big differences there that um, for Aristotle, and that's why some people then think, well, Aristotle's system is more humane, <laughs> uh, and sort of the, the Stoic side is sort of a bit more arid, um, which I won't comment on. Um, but that's one of the big differences there in the conception of um, virtue, that it's, for Aristotle, it's less, in a way, sort of reason-based or merely reason-based, um, but that um, the emotions, they, for Aristotle, they get to be integrated into reason in a way that they aren't, um, as far as I can tell, um, in stoics <coughs> such as um, Seneca. Another a difference one could mention between Seneca Stoics and Aristotle is um, that that the Stoics didn't think that external goods mattered to to the good life. So 
in a sense, you're right, that it wouldn't matter what city you were in, even if you're in the worst city, you could be good as long as you had this internal state of, of uh, virtue. Um, but Aristotle really thought that you, you couldn't do that. You couldn't be isolated and, ha and be in a terrible community and do well in life. So there seems a distinction there too. This talk about the Stoics actually gives me a nice jump into talking about Hobbes because um, the Stoics' great opponent in, opponents in post-Aristotelian philosophy were, as you may well know, the Epicureans. So the Stoics um, had a view of a single, just, distant, but real God um, and life and the meaning of life for the Stoics was about bringing our will into line with the will of the universe, the will of God, and it was about purging bad bodily things such as emotions. Emotions for the Stoics are beliefs about the way the world is, and they're mostly false, and mostly you should get rid of them. I, I think that's a pretty inhumane view, actually. I don't like that part of Stoicism. But anyway, the Stoics' great opponents were the Epicureans, and the Epicurean view, going back to Democritus, is that all there is is matter in motion plus convention. And plus convention is pretty bloody important in the way Epicureanism works out as a political philosophy. And in a sense, what Hobbes is doing throughout his career is just working out Epicureanism as a political philosophy. And in that sense, he's, he, you're absolutely right to, to hint that he's anti-teleological, very much so. All he sees is a world of matter in motion. But the bit of Hobbes that everybody quotes is um, whatever any man, forgive me if I get the quote wrong on the spur of the moment, whatever any man for his part desireth, that he calleth good. That quote, text without a context is a pretext, that quote is always wrenched out of its context because the point that Hobbes is making in that context is not merely that good and bad are conventional terms. It's also that, and this is the meaty bit, it's also that the state, the Leviathan, has the power to set up conventions about what good and bad, right and wrong are, and to impose them on us. And if we get out of line with what the Leviathan says about good and bad, right and wrong, so much the worse for us, because the Leviathan is how it's got to be, because otherwise it's just chaos. If we don't have Leviathan, a powerful system of government in place, we will just go back to atoms spinning in the void. Everything will be chaotic. So in that sense, Hobbes is absolutely an Epicurean updated and absolutely an anti-Stoic philosopher and also an anti-Aristotelian philosopher. So I guess this relates to the idea of, of essences and how they play a role. But also, um, I'd love to move into the material a bit about Aristotle's interest in the natural world and how those two sort of seemingly disparate forces come together in his work. Okay, thank you. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Aristotle's interest in the natural world and very specifically his interest in uh, non-human animals, uh, which I'll call, usually just call zoology. So why was he interested in the natural world? Well, he tells us that we have an, actually, we as human beings desire to understand the world around us. We want to know how it operates, how it's structured, what it's like. We seek theoretical understanding. We seek the truth, in fact. This is kind of related to that leisure time we have. That's why you're all here today. You're seeking the truth. You're finding out about philosophy. Well, he thought um, what was fantastic about studying other 
animals was that they're right there in front of you. You could just pick them up and look at them and study them. It's much easier than trying to find out about stars. Here's somebody who doesn't have a telescope. So he says, look, that's really hard. They're far away. We can't see them very clearly. But the same kinds of things we're looking for when we look, do astronomy and we look up to the sky, we're find, trying to find structures. That's the kind of thing we can find around us in the natural world, in the living beings around us. So living beings and stars and heavens as well are for Aristotle substances and very important kind of substance because they're self-maintaining. So they have this kind of really funky structure and organization. When he's looking at animals and plants, he spends much more time on animals. He gives the plants to Theophrastus as we do those. But he's looking for um, this, these objectives or aims, or um, he calls it a telos, so the teleology. He sees <coughs> when you look at a, a plant seed, what is the plant seed about? It's about becoming an oak tree. What is the kitten about? It's about becoming a cat and living a life of a cat. What's the human infant about? It's about growing up in this complex community uh, to, in order to live a fulfilled human life. And so he's looking for those ends when he's looking and trying to find out about animals. And when he does this, it's really, really actually incredibly complicated. He comes up with the science of biology and zoology. A fourth of his writings are directly on animals. Um, so he's not spending that time just trying to find out through looking at animals about humans. He's studying those animals for the sake of knowledge. So it's, we desire to understand about the world for its own sake. This is a, a, a branch of theoretical understanding. <coughs> he looks at the way they live. He studies their reproductive cycles. Um, he studies their different body parts. He cuts them up. He looks inside. He sees how the structures fit together. He studies their behavior and cognitive capacities. Um, he comes up with novel groupings of animals. There's blooded animals. There's um, four-footed, boviparous um, egg layers. You know, there's all these different kinds of names and groupings that he comes up with. Um, in, if you say, well, how is all of that related to his philosophy? Isn't this just sort of natural science? He doesn't separate out the study of zoology from everything else he's doing, um, and neither should we. Um, so there isn't sort of as much of an us and them when you're, when in, in, when you're reading his zoology and parts of, of his other works. It's very clear that he understands that when he's studying animals, we are also animals. When he's studying other animals, we are also part of this group. And some of the general patterns that we'll find here are going to be applicable to us or just going to be generally applicable to all sublunary living beings, all living beings on the earth. Um, so a little example of that is that he's very interested in memory, how memory works, what's happening when you dream, what's happening when animals, he thinks animals have memory, animals dream, and he has a sort of rudimentary idea that what happens when you dream is that you're kind of consolidating these memories. Um, and it turns out that this is the kind of thing that, that modern science is actually very interested in sort of coming up with experiments to show now. So these are kind of questions he was asking about all life. The other kind of example is we know about form and matter from his metaphysics, but it's kind of boring if you just use artificial examples. If you say the chair has the form of chair, well, it's just kind of its shape. But if you realize that often he's thinking 
biologically, he's thinking about animals, he's thinking about plants, he's thinking about us as animals, then form and matter become much more interesting because the form is going to be all those living functions, all the kind of structured parts of the body that contribute to the, um, how that animal leads a good life. And so you've got something much more complicated than just the shape of the, of the object. Into the yeah. kind of organized system in Aristotle. So obviously they say that Francis Bacon is the first to kind of put out what we would recognize now as a kind of scientific method of sorts that you know encourages yeah. people to do so. So you have to, just as I said about him not knowing about an academic journal, you have to cast your mind back to uh, you know thousands of years before you have a scientific method. Um, but he obviously, well, he had to come up with a methodology because there wasn't one. Nobody else was systematically studying animals. There were medical practitioners who were also medical theorists. They only looked at human bodies. He's the first person to cut up animal bodies for the sake of finding out how they're structured. Other people cut them up for you know, religious purposes or whatever, but to butcher them. Or, but I mean, he really had to come up with his own methodology. And yes, he does have um, a, a back and forth between theory and observation, but it's not what, the sort of thing you would recognize. He's not going to test his conclusions. He's not going um, to have a laboratory where he's testing out the theories he's just come up with. But on the other hand, he does say in the, in, in the work called The Generation of Animals, he's given an account of how bees breed because it's all very complicated and difficult to figure out and nobody's figured it out. And he says, well, here, this is as far as theory can take me. But I need to go back to the observations and, and do some more empirical research because that's where I'm going to get a better answer to this. So he does have these kind of ideas when he comes into practice. One of the nice things about his empirical methods are um, the way he studies animal behavior because he doesn't, well, in a way it's just luck that he doesn't have our modern methods because the modern methods of studying animal behavior, especially animal cognition, is to set up a, like a maze or set up a, some kind of structure in a lab, take the animal, put it in there, and it's a really artificial setting. And also, the, um, often these experiments are there to test human cognitive capacities, like we are the measure of whether animals are clever or not. And um, he doesn't do that. He looks at them in a natural setting, tries to find out in their natural setting why they would be trying to figure out how to pursue that prey or, or protect their young. And so he's using this ethological method that's um, coming back into favor in the way we understand the way animals think. It's interesting, especially since you say that the, these texts were ones, the, the texts that discuss this content on animals were ones that were less focused on yeah. in the period where Aristotle was really the, the most dominant figure. It's interesting to speculate on, you know, if those had been more forefront, whether the way things emerged after him would have been. Um, well, of course, um, as Sophie Grace mentioned in the beginning, there's a sense in which this is um, the Enlightenment has to overcome mm -hmm. some of the Aristotelian ways of looking at the world, um, some of which was this teleological way of looking at the world that was inspired in part by his interest in animals and the way they operate. But within biology as a science, um, his work was rated quite well in when biology became a science in the late 18th, early 19th century. Cuvier and Darwin were quite interested in what Aristotle was up to. They, they rated his um, research. 
So it's, you know, in physics and other sciences, yet we had to ditch Aristotle, but in biology, he was a, a became, became a, a, an important figure in the history of the subject. And it, it can't be emphasized too much that he was the first great observational scientist. But again and again in his works, including the ethics, you get this rather enchanting pattern where Aristotle says, well, here's our question. Now, what do people say about this question? What are the views? Let's collect some views. And he does that in the politics. He says, well, how should a city be organized? Well, let's look at how cities actually are organized. And again, in biology, he's the first great observational scientist. He goes out there and he collects data. If you know Bertolt Brecht's play, Galileo, it begins with Bertolt Brecht, sorry, it begins with Galileo and his telescope. And the point of the scene is very much, you know, for too long, people have been asking, does the earth go around the sun or the sun go around the earth? Well, what does the Bible say? Or let's have a look in the Bible. Or how many, how many teeth do horses have? Let's see what Aristotle says about how many. Why not look in a bloody horse's mouth? Why not use a telescope <laughs> and look at the sky? Yeah. That's Brecht's point. Now, as a Christian of some scholastics, that might be fair. Actually, not all. There mm -hmm. were some great research scientists like Robert Kilwardby in the Middle Ages too. Google him. But of, of Aristotle, it's absolutely not fair at all. He was the most observation-centered philosopher there's ever been. And other philosophers found him boring because he spent too much time on observation mm -hmm. and not enough in the armchair. Um, so, we've, you know, apparently... Darwin and the later thinkers in the beginning of biological sciences proper at the end of the 19th century do take him seriously, maybe in a way that's not always appreciated. Uh, are there any other ways in which we can think of Aristotle as helpful for elucidating how we should consider animals as agents in their own right or as things that might have a need to flourish in some way themselves? Or is that yes, thank you. Um, so uh, we've been hearing about how human beings are political animals and human beings have a way of living a good human life. Uh, so that kind of pattern is very much evident in his research in zoology. So he thinks that, obviously he thinks that the species are fixed. Um, so there is a way it is to live a life of a lion. There's a way it is to live a life of a dolphin. And it will have its particular habitat, it will have its particular activities. And if it can do these things freely and well and um, is able to achieve its ends, which are basically to survive and live this kind of life, do these kind of activities and have, have offspring, then this is a really valuable part of the world because there are dolphins that are living like dolphins. Also, he thinks there's an inner life. So this is where... This is the kind of dark side of the Enlightenment, is that Descartes and some of his followers thought that animals were machines. They didn't have any inner life. That allows you to do whatever you like to non-human animals. And Aristotle did not have that view. Non-human animals, like us, have experiences. They feel things. They have emotions. They even have, some of them have primitive virtues. They are leading the kind of life that's good for them. And so you have these good things in the world. And he, and he actually says very um, specifically in the, in the generation of animals, he says, well, being is better than not being. Well, that's something Plato could get on board with. But then he says, living is better than not living. Well, Plato may not agree with that. He might think that being a dead soul, you know, separated from the body is better. No, no, no. Aristotle is very clear. Being alive, sensing, experiencing the world is a valuable thing. So the... He would be absolutely appalled by the number of animals that are becoming extinct, that are not able to live their lives 
now. So I think that there, we already know uh, there's already a, um, a field of neuroaristotelian environmental ethics that builds on those kind of ideas, that there is a, a good in the world, there's value in the world for these animals living the kinds of lives that they live. Okay, at this point, let's see if any final questions then. Why was it that Bacon had this vicious antagonism towards Aristotle? Clever man though he was, was it his, o his own psychological problems that were uh, motivating him? I don't think so. Um, this question that's relevant to this section and the previous section, uh, how should we or can we apply Aristotle in a kind of urban life where you know we can't go out and examine an animal we can't go and talk to our local politician and get be corrected on matters of morality we aren't necessarily part of one community are there have been there been attempts to revise Aristotle for this kind of new reality how relevant do you consider our Aristotle's modes of persuasion today uh, considering the new rhetoric uh, that we have in politics Okay, so just to summarize the questions for any that weren't picked up, um, first question about why Bacon does set his new program against Aristotelianism. Uh, was it about psychological problems? Maybe not, but could you explain uh, that departure? Then secondly, how should we apply Aristotle now? Uh, how can it scale up given the way in which communities organize themselves differently now and the lack of accessibility of various parts of the Aristotelian system? And then I guess a great final note to end on, like how relevant is this Aristotle for a contemporary political moment and the specific, uh, you know, tensions we're looking at as societies now. Can I have a go at the how to apply Aristotle question? This is really just building on something I was saying before. I think um, there is this notion in the Aristotelian tradition of meaningful work. And I think that too much of the work that too many people in the world to do, do today is not meaningful for them and could not be meaningful for anybody. I think we need to find ways of organizing society so that it is less built around profit and more built around meaningful work. And I, I do think that that's an Aristotelian idea, but I, I think it's pretty clearly a socialist idea as well, which maybe helps us a bit with the question about what kind of voter. Well, I don't know about Aristotle, but an Aristotelian should be. Any thoughts on the sort of the bacon versus when you spoke, spoke about the, the lack yeah. of popularity maybe that those texts had, I wonder, was Bacon just yeah. a little under-informed on what was available to him? Within? Um, it's been a while since I've read Bacon, but there's a lot of anti-Aristotelian rhetoric at that time, so he's probably just, um, uh, he, he's following that kind of rhetoric because th that was the kind of thing you did. And when you read go back to those texts and read them, and even some more modern works on the history of science. They just love to do down Aristotle. It's, uh, yeah. Um, and, and that's important. I mean, it was an important moment in the Enlightenment when you know, there was a whole system of scholasticism that did need to be kicked out the door. But when you actually go back to the texts of Aristotle, he may not have been guilty of all of those things that the Aristotelians were being accused of. It's just so hard to imagine what it would be like to be doing science in that period, I mean, we yes. look at the yeah. Enlightenment in the yeah. context of the invention of things like microscopes yeah. and how that Absolutely. so radically changed yeah. people's understandings and to think of yeah. so far before exactly. micro yeah. I microscopes. I think it is very important to put that context in place before you judge. Well, one um, last thing about 
um, so Aristotle's persuasiveness and what um, and how we can adapt that. So it's of course very speculative, but um, if you think about what would Aristotle do, uh, right? That's the bumper sticker. Uh, what would Aristotle do? Um, <laughs> so I, my sense is that um, he wouldn't be um, spending the sort of energy that uh, we scholars spend on old texts like that. Um, I mean, so I've been researching, let's say, 100 pages in Aristotle, uh, you know, Sophia looks at uh, a quarter of the corpus, it's not even the whole of it, um, so because it's just so dense. And I guess Aristotle, um, and that was, uh, Sophia Grace was talking about that, he is pretty quick at picking out the key points of other thinkers and says, okay, they think that, they think that, they think that, this is problematic because, without um, necessarily going into really great detail um, of um, how the argument is well framed, how it is meant, and so on, there is some detailed criticism of Plato and other philosophers, but that is not necessarily the, the standard um, approach. So I wonder, um, and I don't know what your sense of that is, whether Aristotle would be much more interested in expanding um, our research into whatever artificial intelligence or something like that uh, mm -hmm. and not uh, harping on about um, things that <laughs> long dead people have said a long time ago. Okay. Well, I guess that kind of moves back into the third question about the relevance, but I guess to close maybe I just wanted to know if there's some final thing you feel people should really take from Aristotle, read in Aristotle or some myth you'd like to correct Maybe just a parting note from each of you on, you know, on how he can be relevant or, you know, what there is there to, to be useful now. Just to put you on the spot, obviously, when you've already said a lot. Well, one thing I think that's very interesting and continues to be a question for me is whether we've really got rid of teleology and whether we ever really could get rid of purpose-based thinking. Because this is crucial to Aristotle. Teleology is one of his four causes. The question... For what purpose does this happen is a question that you can ask about anything for him. Um, he does allow that some things are random. But the question remains open, I think, even for us. Even when we think in evolutionary terms, we know we've read, we've read our Dawkins, we've been schooled in the idea that you're not supposed to think purposively. But that kind of thinking just emerges in our thinking about evolution. And the great thing about Aristotle is he has the ability to see things both ways and to explain things both ways. And this is a, actually, I think, a corollary of him having a system of four causes or four causes, four ways of explaining. You can explain anything from the bottom up. You can also explain it from the top down. That clock, for example, why does it say 8 o'clock? Top down answer, because it is 8 o'clock. Bottom up answer, because the mechanics are so and so and it was set this way and the electrics are working and blah, 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 blah. Bottom up. Aristotle does that kind of bottom down and top up explanation bottom up, <laughs> it's going to be dinner time in a moment, <laughs> bottom, down, bottom up and top down explanation with all sorts of things. Um, anything that has matter and form in it, you can explain it starting from the matter and work to the form or in the other direction. Memory is an example of this. Aristotle thinks that there's an interesting paradox about memory which goes like this. If I'm remembering a white swan yesterday, that's an event in my mind, right, but it can't be perceiving the white swan because I'm remembering perceiving the white swan. So the white swan was yesterday. But there's something in my mind which relates to that white swan, which is something that was, in our sense of causal, was causally implanted in my mind by things that happened yesterday. 
Is it or isn't it the white swan? Yes, in a sense it is. It's a token. It stands for that experience yesterday. No, in another sense it isn't because it's not the perception of the swan. It's just the memory of the perception of the swan. So there you have a thing, a mental event in my head, an image of the white swan that I saw yesterday. Both top-down and bottom-up explanations apply to it. It stands for the swan. That's true. That's top-down. It's also just a causal relict of something that happened yesterday. That's also true. That's bottom-up. Can we get rid of teleology? I think there's a sense in which we can't. And I think Aristotle helps us to see how reduction and top-down explanation can both be true at the same time, the same things. Okay, thank you. Sophia? Oh, well, it, it's such a difficult question. <laughs> um, I, I would agree with Sophie Grace that it's, there's an insight that Aristotle has about anti-reductionism and post-enlightenment, there was almost like we, there was too much reductionism, everything being reduced to just the mechanics. And we need to sort of pull back slightly from that. So no longer think of ourselves as cogs in a system of kind of individuals with their own aims of wealth or pleasure or whatever, and, and really think about our interconnectedness with other people and about how that is what it is to be human and that we are embodied and we're part of the natural world and we're interconnected with the natural world. We're not just disembodied minds and the whole rest of the natural world is this sort of matter in motion that has nothing to do with us. Yeah, okay, fine. I think um, perhaps um, the ability to learn to do things for their own sake, um, that this is something that's really important to everybody's life. In a way, children do that, and then it's very easy to forget that. Um, and then reconnecting with this idea of Aristotle that um, doing things for an end that can't be really um, what makes you happy in the end. Okay, thank you so much. I'd just like to thank our speakers and thank our audience for coming along. Thank you very much. For <laughs>